Thanks for listening to the Church in the City podcast. Subscribe on iTunes and follow at Church in the City. Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, My name is Steve. I'm one of the elders here at Church in the City. Um, It's a huge um, privilege to be able to share the Word of God with you this morning. If you have a Bible, uh, please can you turn to the book of Philippians. Uh, We're going to spend most of our time this morning in Philippians chapter 2 and Philippians chapter 3. Um, the words will come back come on the screen uh, behind me, but um, if you have a Bible, it's always good to follow along when we uh, read text when we read the text together. When you drive in the city, especially in traffic, are you uh, someone who is able to follow directions, whether it be from Google Maps or maybe a kind passenger who was in your car trying to suggest a faster route to you, or do you go it alone? Do you trust your own instincts? In our family, we only have one car, and um, Debs does most of the driving, and so claims to know where and when the traffic is bad. Um, unfortunately, she's, she's often right, um, and I, ta- I find it particularly difficult and hard to, to take directions, especially when she suggests that I go in completely the opposite direction to the direction that we need to be going. Maybe I'm just the atypical proud male who won't admit to, to being lost or, or being wrong, even when I know that I am. But when the two of us are driving in the car together and I'm driving, I'll often take my own route. Um, the problem, though, is when we, when we drive together, if North Avenue is busy, inevitably I'll hear at some point along, uh, along the road as we're crawling up North Avenue, she'll say something like, you should have taken division. But the problem is, I know that if I had taken division, she, should, she would have said the same thing about North Avenue. Now, don't get me wrong. It's not an issue with Debs. Um, I also find it hard to take advice from mathematical algorithms, which is what runs Google Maps. So even with Google Maps, I find it hard to follow directions. I'll take a hint. I'll take a peek at Google Maps. It'll suggest where I should go. But then for some reason, I like to shut it down and try it and and try to do it on my own. After 40 years of wandering through the desert, a journey that should have taken Israel days and not years, the nation of Israel was tired of following God's direction. And they were ready to cross over into the promised land. And so they are camped at the Jordan River. And just before they're about to cross over into the promised land, Joshua, who is now leading the nation of Israel, gets the commanders to wander through the camp and to give Israel one final instruction for them to follow. And it is this. He says, when you see the ark, when you see the presence of God, the ark of the covenant represented the presence of God. When you see the ark carried by the priests, move out from your positions and follow it. Follow the presence of God. Then you will know which way to go because you've never been this way before. The Bible talks a lot about following the presence of God. Israel were instructed to follow the cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night, both of which represented God's presence as they were journeying through the desert. And as we just mentioned a few moments ago, they were told to follow the Ark of the Covenant across the Jordan River. Jesus, who is, who is God in human form, the very manifest presence of God, uh, chose 12 to follow him as his disciples, to learn from him and to become more like him. Likewise, we've been called to follow Jesus by 
uh, keeping in step with the Spirit, as Paul writes in Galatians chapter 5. The, the Holy Spirit is, is God's presence poured out upon His church. Because, as Romans 8 says, those of us who are children of God are led by the Spirit of God. So this imagery of walking, of paths, of following in someone's footsteps is often used in the Bible to describe the Christian life. Solomon writes in Proverbs 4, Do not set foot on the path of the wicked or walk in the way of evil. Instead, he says in in chapter 8, Walk in the way of the righteous along the paths of injustice. Uh, Sorry, along the paths of justice. Jesus' call to, to come follow me was a call to walk in his footsteps. And Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 4 to the church in Ephesus and to us, he says, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling you have received, this calling to be citizens of heaven. Because we live in a city, though, I think sometimes it's easy to make the mistake of thinking that following a path is the same thing as walking along a sidewalk, but it's not. A sidewalk is predetermined. It's laid out once in concrete and then it's done. But the Christian life is, 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 is no way uh, uh, the same as walking along a sidewalk. The Christian life is a way. It's a relationship. It's a series of steps often taken into unfamiliar territory and along, winding, uh, along a winding road. Completely unlike a sidewalk. In hindsight, it's a highway. But in the moment, not so much. To make a path, you need to be brave, brave to, to walk into the unknown and then to develop the habit of walking on that path over and over again. Initially, it's not very easy, but the more you do it, the easier it becomes to walk that way. And that's what's true of following Jesus. As Eugene Peterson puts it, it's a lifestyle. Following Jesus is a lifestyle of obedience in the same direction. The good news is that we can trust Jesus. And so as we follow him into the unknown, along paths we've never been down before, he promises to broaden the path beneath our feet. Who do you follow? What path or what road are you taking? What do you hope to find at the end of it? These are questions that we are asking at Church in the City it's a time when we need to be following the presence of God as more closely than ever before because we are going down a path we've never been down before. I say that because we're in the midst of this 10-week series unpacking Church in the City's new vision framework. We're in the season of doing our utmost to follow Jesus as He defines who we are, how we see the world, and the world we long to see. This vision framework is built on the foundation of our belief. Our belief is what will always be true of church in the city. And we've defined our belief as such. The power and presence of Jesus deeply transforms lives by gifting us with intimacy with the Father and freeing us from everything that holds us down and holds us back. God wants us to live in this reality every day. But for that to happen, we need to remember who are we following. Are we following the ways of God or are we following the ways of the world? Our belief calls for a a response and we've defined that as our banner. Our banner defines our mission and it articulates our ultimate aspiration. It's, It's us, but it's also part of God's purposes for all nations and across all generations. And therefore, in many respects, it's God's rallying cry to all churches. Our banner is this, all of Jesus 
for everyone. All is the portion of God that, uh, that he has given of himself. All is found in his image. All is found in, in his plan. But ultimately, all of God is found and revealed in his son, Jesus. All of us, or all of Jesus, for everyone. Everyone starts in here, in this room, with every one of us. All of Jesus won't ever be a, a reality to everyone until it is a reality to each of us. Everyone includes people from every tribe and tongue, from every walk of life, and across every generation. However, reaching everyone with all of Jesus is impossible and will always be unattainable until we start with someone. Who is that someone for you? Is the key question we asked last week. So our banner, all of Jesus for everyone, is activated through our values. Our banner is built on our belief and it is activated through our values. These values are covenants or commitments that we will make with with each other that will guide our actions. And starting today and over the next five Sundays, excluding Easter, we're going to unpack these five values. Can I just say as an aside, excluding Easter... But I want to challenge you, as I challenged you a few moments ago, with the question, who is that someone in front of you? Who is that someone that you can invite to to Easter Sunday? Our belief and our banner and our values all come together through what we have termed our ethic, the glue that holds it all together. And in some respects, our ethic is perhaps the most important aspect of this entire vision framework. We can have a great belief and a great banner statement and awesome values, but it will mean nothing if we bring this across to the world and sound nothing like a sound nothing but is but if we sound like a clanging gong. The ethic is what ensures that the world tastes and sees that Jesus and his kingdom is good. So where do we start in making all of Jesus for everyone a reality? Well, it starts with all of us. It starts with all of us knowing, owning all of the framework, surrendering all of our lives, using all of our gifts and resources, living out all of the values to fulfill all of God's purpose in order to disciple all of the nations by making all of Jesus known to everyone. It will require total surrender. But, but friends, I'm not calling for surrender to a church or to a value statement. It will require total surrender to Jesus. Not only will it call for total surrender, but it, would call, it will call for wholehearted trust, a commitment to ourselves and to one another that we're going to let the promises of God do the heavy lifting. Our, the first of our five values reflects this posture of trust and surrender, which is why we've termed it the, 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 the value above all others. This is of the first of our five values that will ensure that all of Jesus for everyone becomes a reality. The value is this, all of us for Jesus. All of us for Jesus. Now what comes to mind when you hear that phrase, all of us for Jesus? Hopefully phrases or, or words like unity and oneness and togetherness. Yes, those are, those are all essential. And, and in fact, every single one of our five values will generally uh, uh, reflect and address this call for unity and togetherness. And specifically, uh, one of the values that will be unpacked in weeks to come will address this. 
without losing the intention of, of us doing this together, let me change one word just to provoke a little to see if there can be a different response. How about this? All of me for Jesus. What comes to mind now? Let me provoke a little further by asking this question. Am I loving Jesus with all that I am and with all that I have? Hopefully what comes to mind now are words like wholehearted surrender, trust, a willingness to yield to Jesus, a desire to follow Jesus. Two words that come to mind for me when I, when I think of the phrase all of us for Jesus are uh, words that, that, that capture this posture of surrender and trust are the words lordship and worship. And we're going to look at both of those this morning. Lordship. All of us for Jesus is a response that acknowledges Jesus is Lord. And that's essentially what Paul is writing about in Philippians chapter 2. In verse 10 and 11, he says, It is Jesus that is exalted by God to the highest place and given the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. Jesus as Lord is the summary statement of Christianity. Jesus as Lord happens in a flesh when you or I say yes to Jesus and receive him into our hearts as Lord and Savior. But the mystery of this is the reality of Jesus as Lord also takes a lifetime of responding and outworking the, 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 the privilege of being in relationship with him. It's a series of yeses to following Jesus. So there is a response to Jesus as Lord. And, and my response, our response to the Lordship of Jesus should be all of me, all of us for Jesus. But what does Lordship look like? How does lordship happen? I think there are two things that Paul picks up on in this passage in Philippians chapter 2. Firstly, surrendering to Jesus as Lord happens as we firstly partner with the Spirit. Remember the context of Philippians 2 is the lordship of Jesus. Verse 11, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. But in verse 1 and 2, he, he describes how this happens. Verse 1, therefore, if you have any comfort from being united with Christ, if it Sorry, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing, if any participation in or any partnership with the Spirit, if, if, if any tenderness and compassion, and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in, in spirit and of one mind. We surrender to Jesus as Lord by our common sharing in or by our partnership with the Holy Spirit as part of a local church family. And I emphasize the point as part of a local church family because if you look at verse 1 and 2, the result of partnering with the Spirit is tenderness towards others, compassion towards others, being like-minded, expressing love and showing unity. Because the Spirit of God lives in me and the Spirit of God is uniquely and powerfully manifest as the people of God gathered together in local church, we are now able to pray, Holy Spirit, help me, help us grow in our knowledge of, our love for, our trust in and our obedience to Jesus as Lord. The Lordship of Jesus is reflected in a life of keeping in step with the Spirit. 
of being led by the Spirit, as we mentioned earlier, of being filled with the Spirit, as Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 5. That phrase, be, be filled with the Spirit, or, or more accurately, be continually filled with the Spirit, is a vitally important truth, but so often misunderstood. Be continually filled with the Spirit. Great. Okay. Well, what, what do I do? Be continually filled by the Spirit is, 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 a, is similar to being asked or being told, told to be invited by your friends to dinner. Well, well who, who does that? Who does the inviting? Do, do I invite myself? Do, I, do my friends invite me? Be continually filled with the Spirit. Is that, is that my responsibility? Is that God's responsibility? And so often we, we misunderstand this instruction because we view being filled by the Spirit as some passive response on our behalf and some, and, and some responsibility that God has to fill us. When in fact, the, 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 the most accurate way to consider the instruction, be filled with the Spirit, is this dynamic partnership between us and God. Let me use the analogy of sailing. To catch the wind requires a sailor who, who is growing in his skill and ability to know where the wind is blowing and therefore how to maximize its power so he can position both the boat and the sail to capture the power of the wind. To be filled with the Spirit is exactly the same. To be filled with the Spirit, to grow in our surrender to Jesus as Lord, requires a positioning of our hearts to wait to watch, to listen, then to, to align ourselves with where the wind is blowing, to hoist the sail of our hearts, as it were, so that we can be empowered by the Spirit to move with the Spirit. The best way to, to compare a life in the flesh, a life of striving and hard work, compared to a life that is empowered by the Spirit, is to compare sailing with rowing. My eldest daughter, Rebecca, lives in Boston and Rose is part of a crew, Rose for her university team. And every day they are out uh, pretty much on the Charles River. And there's this beautiful, if you've ever been to Boston, there's this beautiful kind of uh, the Charles River Basin right by the city. And and you'll see um, uh, uh, boats, uh, uh, um, kind of the girls on, on, uh, in their boat, straining at the oar, sweat dripping from their brow working hard, but going somewhere. And right next to them, on the same river, will be a sailboat with a single individual discerning the, the direction of the wind and going twice as fast with hardly any work whatsoever. Surrendering to Jesus as Lord happens through partnership with the Spirit within the context of the local church family. As we learn together to keep in step with and to be continually filled by the Spirit. As we allow the power of God to work in us and among us, causing us to change. And this, this idea of allowing the power of God to work in us and, and, and among us, causing us to change, is what Paul emphasizes in verse 12 and 13. He says, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. And again, the question has to be asked, is it me working out my salvation or is it God working in? And the answer to that question again is yes. Let me illustrate, let me illustrate the work and partnership with the Spirit in this way. 
When I was working in South Africa for a big chemical company, one of my responsibilities was making sure that the product that we would send around the world um, was sent you know, correctly. And the shipping agent that I worked with one day took me to, to Durban Harbor, which is, South Af- uh, which is Africa's busiest and biggest harbor port. And he took me out to show me around, and it was an absolutely fascinating trip. And one of the things he showed me was the function and responsibility of the harbor pilot. The harbor pilot was this um, skilled sailor, this skilled pilot who, who um, whenever a container ship was about to come into the harbor, the container ship would firstly uh, th- uh, throw down anchor out in, in, in the ocean. The harbor pilot would be helicoptered out and landed on the ship where he would make his way to the bridge. The harbor pilot would then stand behind the ship's captain giving instructions on specifically where to go because the the shipping lanes within the harbor were were very strategically placed and it needed the the wisdom of the harbor pilot to direct the, the captain where to go. The captain had a choice. He could listen to the advice and the, and the wisdom of the harbor pilot or he could run the risk of doing it himself. But, off, but if he was wise on... On his own authority, he would submit and surrender to the instructions of the Holy Sp- uh, of the harbor pilot. Jesus promises us another just like him, the Holy Spirit, who is is called the Counselor, or in the Greek, the the Parakletos, the one who walks alongside, taking us by the hand, whispering encouragement, showing us step by step how to live, surrendering to Jesus as Lord. All of us for Jesus happens through partnership with the Spirit. Surrendering to Jesus as Lord also happens, secondly, as we follow the pattern of Christ. Verse 5, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. That's the NIV. The ESV does a far better job of translating that verse. The ESV in verse 5 says this, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. What Paul is saying is, you and I, because we are in Jesus, we have the mind of Christ. When we think of lordship, we think of humility and servant-heartedness and generosity and sacrifice and trusting God and surrender and obedience to the Father, which all sound so hard. At times, they feel impossible. How do we do it? We remember that we are in Jesus because according to verse from verse 5 through 11, and we don't have time to read it, but you can read it yourself. It says, Jesus humbled himself. Jesus took on the nature of, of a servant. Jesus was generous even to the point of laying down his life. Jesus sacrificed everything. Jesus trusted his father. Jesus surrendered and, and obeyed. Jesus did it all and you are in him. You have the mind of Christ. Surrendering to Jesus as Lord, all of us for Jesus, happens through partnership with the Spirit and as we follow the pattern of Christ. All of us for Jesus is about lordship, but it is also about worship. When I say worship, I'm not talking about singing. I'm talking about everything. I'm talking about where we find our joy and where we place our confidence and where we find our hope. Worship is about where we find our joy. If you, turn, if you, if you, if you go to the next chapter, Philippians chapter 3, verse 1, Paul writes, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. George Mueller, who was a 19th century evangelist who, who, who served God incredibly and saw, uh, I think, thousands, if not tens of thousands of people saved under his 
ministry made this incredible statement. He says, The first great and primary business to which I ought to attend every day is to have my soul happy in the Lord. You see, if we don't settle the reality that Jesus alone is our ultimate source of joy, then we will spend our day, we will spend our lives chasing after secondary sources of joy, trying to fill our lives with things that will never satisfy. And living in a city like Chicago, living in a downtown context like Chicago, that is, that is so experiential, will, will only exacerbate that problem. Lesser joys have a place in our lives, but their place is under the ultimate joy that is Jesus. All of us for Jesus means our joy is in Him and in Him alone. So let me challenge you with this. Do you feast on the abundance of Jesus? Is He your ultimate joy? Or do you settle for the scraps of momentary experiences? Has some secondary source of happiness taken His place? Worship is about where we find our joy. Worship is also about where we place our confidence. A couple of weeks ago, I used an illustration from Black Panther, and you guys know how much I absolutely love that movie. But I came across this, this fascinating interview um, with Letitia Wright, who is uh, the actress who played Black Panther's sister in the movie. She had, um, prior to this role, taken a significant hiatus or break from, from, from acting. And the interviewer is asking her the reasons why. Listen to what she says. I needed to take a break from acting because I really idolized it. So I left acting and went on a journey to discover God and my relationship with Him, and I became a Christian. He gave me such love and light within myself. I felt secure, like I didn't need validation from anyone else, from my career, from getting a part. My happiness wasn't dependent on that. It was dependent on my relationship with Jesus. The interviewer interrupts and he says, because as an actress, you are judged all the time by producers, by the public. And she goes back in, yes, by social media, but I'm centered on who I am in Jesus. I'm not perfect, but I'm walking every day, staying connected to him. And that's the very thing that Paul writes in Philippians chapter 3 verse 7. He says this, Whatever was to my profit, my religious pedigree, my upbringing, my education, my zeal, whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. You see, friends, we are challenged every single day with the reality of either we're putting our confidence in Jesus or we're putting our confidence in other things. But we we cannot do both. What are those things that you are challenged to put your confidence in that you need to step away from in order to put your hope in Jesus? For Letitia writes, it was acting. For Paul, it was his religious pedigree. For me, it's to be a successful church leader in order to find credibility from others. For Debs and I, over the last six to eight weeks, it's, it's the confidence that we, that we used to have for, of being there for our children to ensure their safety. For you, is it money? Is it relationships? Is it your career? Is it education? You see, good things can't become ultimate things because if they do, they will ultimately destroy you. All of us for Jesus means we place our confidence in Him and in Him alone. So let me ask you, is Jesus the rock on which you stand and the tower that you run to in times of trouble? Worship is about where we find our joy. Worship is about where we place our confidence. But worship is also where we find our hope. 
What do you daydream about? What do you long for? What do you look forward to more than anything? What is the future that you anticipate that gives meaning and purpose and drives your decision? What's the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow for you? Is it marriage? A successful career? Graduation? Financial independence? Those are all good things, but, they, but they're not good enough. I heard someone say this, when I hear someone has brought their, bought their dream house, I'm really sad that their dream was as small as a house. Paul describes his dream and his hope in verse 10 and 11 of chapter 3. I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and the participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Paul was in chains when he wrote this. Paul was bound in prison when he wrote this. And he was probably asked, Paul, how can you say something like that? How can you believe in a, in, in a God like that when you are, 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 are facing persecution and, and struggle and hardship? To which he said, yes, probably he would have said, yes, I know there is suffering. But I believe in a God who will bring that to an end one day. A day when God's dwelling will be among his people and, and we will be with him and he will wipe every tear from our eyes and there will be no more death and no more crying and no more pain partnering with the spirit as we learned about earlier particularly through worship enables us to live lives with a certain and sure hope of what is to come we start to long less for a house now and more for our father's house one day we will start to long less for an inheritance that our family might leave us and more on a heavenly inheritance that is kept for us in heaven. We'll begin to long less for treasures on earth that spoil and more for treasures in heaven that will never spoil or fade away. We will long less for retirement for two decades and more for the resurrection for eternity. All of us for Jesus means we discover our ultimate hope is in him. So let me ask you, what or who is your greatest longing and desire? What is the future that you anticipate that gives meaning and purpose to your life? All of us for Jesus is about lordship. Surrendering to Jesus as Lord happens as we partner with the Spirit and as we follow the pattern of Christ. But all of us for Jesus is also about worship. It means our joy and our confidence is in Jesus and Jesus alone. And our ultimate hope is in Him. We rejoice in the Lord. We glory in Jesus. We look forward with faith to God's preferred future. A preferred future where sickness is gone. Where bodies are made whole. Where marriages are restored. Where there is peace in our streets. Where righteousness and justice is the foundation of our culture. As people, as everyone says yes to the all of Jesus. To Jesus as Savior and Lord. All of us for Jesus is our first response to our banner. So let me end off by asking you, who do you follow? What do you hope for? Are you loving Jesus with all that you are and with all that you have? Thanks again for listening to the Church in the City podcast. Subscribe on iTunes and visit us at churchinthecity.us.